Caution. Learning in progress. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Smarter Every Season. Um, in the studio, my name is Hans Dutzman, and in the studio today, I have Nate Burnham with me to, this morning. How are you doing, Nate? Doing well, Hans. How about yourself? I am doing good. Doing good. We have a new person with us today on the podcast, Nate. Um, Clay Scott. Clay, how you doing? Doing well. How are you guys? I'm doing good. Good. Clay uh, just started with Precision in June, so not too long ago, but um, he's going to be one of our, our our new podcast members. We talked about this in previous um, episodes that we're adding some new podcast people to the Smarter Every Season team, and Clay is one of those guys who so will start hearing him more often. You go through Clay, uh, give us a quick background where where you're from, what kind of what's your where where you come from? Yeah, so I grew up in uh, in Eastern Ohio. Uh, we raised some show pigs there. Grew up showing livestock uh, all across the eastern side of the United States. Worked uh, in an Agco dealership while I was going to Ohio State. Got a degree in... Go Bucks. Yeah, Go Bucks. There's go. only two of us in the entire company that are from Ohio State, and we're happy to have both of them on the podcast today. So Yeah. yeah. It was good at PTI, though. We had, had three other Buckeyes out here in Illinois, so that was, that was good at PTI this year. But, That's right. That's right. Uh, yeah, I graduated with a degree in, in Ag Systems Management from, from Ohio State. Really enjoyed my time there. Uh, stayed at the Agco dealership for a while. Got pretty familiar with Fent Brand and uh, decided it was time for a change and Moved halfway across the country, so it's been yeah. great out here. I really enjoy the product support team, and I'm excited for what the future brings. Good, welcome. We are glad you are here, Clay. You done. It's been awesome to get to know you over the last couple of months, and your skill sets very useful. Those of you on the on the that are listening, um, it'll be a you will you will get to know Clay well, and I think you'll enjoy working with him. So. Yeah, he so. kind of he kind of glazed over the fact that he did hog shows. I got to talk with him a lot a while back. It is crazy how much actually goes into that. Yeah, we uh, it was nothing for us to, between my sister and I, to show 25 hogs a year. And I, like I said, we were from Ohio, and it was nothing for us to go from New York to Georgia in uh, you know, eight-month show season. Yeah. So it, it was fun. We we uh, did a lot of winning, did a lot of losing, and everything <laughs> in between. So it was good. Like everything in life. Yep. Yep. Hans, we got some other some other people waiting to yeah, come we on, do. don't we? Yep. So um before we bring them in, let's just touch a little bit on our topic today. So we're talking air seeders today. Um so we are this is generally it's fall here in the Midwest. We actually have combines rolling right now. Um it's thinking we're thinking of harvest times and going through corn and soybean fields is what we're what's generally on our mind at this time of year. But we're shifting gears today and we want to take a look at planting in the fall, specifically crops that are planted with an air seeder or a drill or a box drill or um, along those lines. And the kind of mindset is that generally before spring, we do a series on planter maintenance or planter setup and, and that type of thing. And we decided we want to try and give a little bit of love to the air seeder crowd and uh, see if we can give them a little bit on that and also educate ourselves because I'll be quite honest that I started the, the intro a little bit with it's corn, it's, it's harvest time. We're in the Midwest. It's harvest time. Air seeders are not something that we spend a lot of time with. So we've brought two guys in that are very familiar with air seeders um and we'll we'll bring them on um first off is uh sean livingston sean how you doing today great good morning guys how are you doing good sean you are uh ontario canada is that correct uh so i am currently all of eastern canada okay so ontario quebec and the maritimes okay all right 
All right. And you've been, you're a uh, sales manager from up there and you have been, you've been here, what, almost five years? Is that right? Uh, I joined the team in 2018, I believe. Okay. So four, four to five years. Okay. All right. And then we've got a new person, Dustin Weinkoff. Um, how are you doing today, Dustin? Good guys. How are you? I'm good. Dustin is probably one of our newer sales managers. Um, you just joined uh, in the last month and a half, two months ago. Is that right? Yeah, two two months ago. I joined at the start of August. So, okay. yeah, we're just on the two-month two mark now. Okay. Well, good. And, Dustin, you come from us. You may be new to Precision, but you are not new to the Cedar market. You have spent um, – if I remember correctly, you've been working at a John Deere dealership and working in Cedars, kind of a spending a lot of your time there in that market. Is that correct? Yeah. So, you know, air seating where I'm from. So I look after the western four provinces in Saskatchewan or in uh, Canada. Sorry, so I kind of border Sean on the east side and then go out to the west coast. Okay. Um, so for us up here, air seating is a is a pretty large part of what we do. Um, and yeah, previous to joining Precision, I was at the Deer dealership and was the product support and optimization person there. So did a lot of work, really hands-on with air seating, um, customers and deer just, you know, as new things were coming out and working through what we needed to make everything better out here. Good. So you spent a little, it kind of sounds like your role was a remote role of what product support is doing then kind of what servicing guys and, and fixing stuff as it comes up then. Yeah, exactly. So we have very much the same as um, our product support roles here, precision planting. Awesome. Well, um, thank you both for joining us. Um, I do want to go ahead and we, I think we got a, a fair bit that we'll cover today, but I do want to kind of uh, go get, get going on this. Um, when we talk about cedars, kind of one of the things that I wanted to kind of touch on first was a little bit of uh, as guys are pulling cedars out or as guys are, are running them, what are some of the big maintenance items that um, cedars you guys should be aware of? Um, kind of a, as a high view, what are some of the things we're, we're looking at that you think when you pull that air cedar out, um, what's, I mean, we obviously are, I'm think I'm used to a, a row crop plant and there's a long list of stuff that we kind of check off from row unit to frame to the closing system um, kind of all the way through. Um, Dustin, what's one of the first things that you, you tell guys to take a look at when they, they pull a cedar out? Well, I guess so the number one thing, two differences in cedars and, you know, Sean will see more of one than the other. Um, kind of the same as me. So we've got, you know, the onboard CCS style or, you know, the traditional air cedar with the cart. So the very first thing, you know, I always tell guys, regardless of anything, is checking our openers, making sure that they're in good condition. Um, they're not wore out. You know, we want to make sure that we're getting to the, so they get to the depth that we're asking and place the seed where we want. That's the number one thing I always tell guys to check right away. So checking to make sure the openers is kind of the same thing we do at disc openers. Now I'm going to jump ahead a little bit in our schedule here a little bit, but you've got something on here. Um, when we were making show notes for this, you mentioned that there's disc openers and that's one thing you mentioned but there's something beyond just a disc opener and air drills yeah so i think for a lot of people listening to the podcast everyone's you know probably most familiar with disc openers um single disc openers on you know like 1990 cps's 1890 1895 um, deer styles okay. what we see in the on the western side of canada we see a lot more 
um, hole drills, so like sea shank type drills, very similar to you know like a piece of tillage equipment. It's a sea shank with a spring trip on it. Um, so there are some of those around, and then we have a lot of independent hole drills around here. So you'll still have a sea style shank, but it will be independently controlled. Um, you know, with either one or two hydraulic cylinders on it for your downforce and packing pressure. So on the, in the Western provinces and, you know, I think North Dakota, uh, Montana, that's where in the U.S. we see more of those key shank style drills or independent hole openers. So Dustin, can I ask why, why do you think there's such a difference between the use of a hole drill out west versus the use of a disc drill, because in Eastern Canada, uh, I, I only know of one hole drill in Ontario, maybe two. Um, we are dominantly single disc openers. So, you know, I think it all comes from to an agronomic standpoint. There are, you know, little pockets of areas out here that have single disc openers. Um, but, you know, back when we went to no-till, um, we needed still a way to kind of blacken the dirt to get some heat into it um, and, you know, get some type of tillage. So being on the western side, we're a lot cooler, longer. It won't take a long time for our ground to warm up. Um, the hoe drill does put a little bit of black soil on top, right? We make a little bit of furrow more area for that sun to hit and absorb some heat so i think that's probably the largest reason that we see more hole drills versus disc out heater and then as a residue management thing um when we're a little bit drier we're trying to mitigate any extra tillage or harrowing type pass we can um and a hole obviously goes through more trash than a than a disc does and not risk hair pinning Interesting. I, Sean, I'm glad you asked the question because I was going to ask the exact same question because it, 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 a sea shank out here sounds like tillage and we don't do like, you know, I'm doing tillage with this. It actually, the only thing that struck my mind was that it, it, I think what guys here in the Midwest could equate it to would be a strip till machine as we're putting fertilizer down yeah. on a strip till machine. Yeah. So I, I asked the question because so I think, I think Dustin hit it right on the head. It's the difference of climate environment. Um, you know, we, we generally warm up in Ontario, uh, quite a bit faster than Western Canada. So a disc drill is very minimum soil disturbance, um, to allow us to open a trench and drop the, the crop in and then close it back up. Um, I think one of the big differences between the two systems is maintenance as well. Uh, from what I understand, and, and Dustin, you can correct me, but a, a disc drill uh, can be quite a bit more costly and time-consuming to do maintenance on it than a hole drill. Yeah, no, that, that, that's for sure. Um, there's just a lot more moving pieces on the disc drill, right? You know, very similar to the planter. Um, one other thing I guess I should just throw in there, agronomically, some of the difference to why guys will do it is out here, we tend to put a, most, if not all of our fertilizer on when we go seeding. So we try to do it in one pass. So some of these openers give us that ability, you know, to put two, 300 pounds of fertilizer on 
um, with our seed and, you know, place it safely out of the way, you know, off to the side and down a little bit. So just kind of to tie back in to where we were before. Um, but to go back to the maintenance thing, yeah, yep. Sean's definitely right. And where I am, you know, rocks are kind of the second soil type too. So sometimes discs don't like rocks. That's shocking. The discs don't like rocks. Clay, you wouldn't know anything about rocks where you're from. No, no, no. <laughs> so, um, so Dustin, I want to go back, touch base a little bit. You talked about the fertilizer aspect of this, and I think that's also something that um, it'd be interesting to expand that a little bit. What's the the mindset behind guys trying to do? fertilizer with the the air seeder um as they're going out because a lot of what's here a lot of our our midwestern approach on this has been um we're going to broadcast it on ahead of the ahead of the planner or spread it ahead in the fall or, or do it in a separate pass is there what's what's the value that you guys see in having it um put on with the air drill because uh, a lot of times these are they're adding a whole nother rank they're adding a third rank just to put fertilizer down um with it correct yeah, so on the disc drill side um, of things like, you know, where Sean is, Sean, you can step in on this. Most of what they'll see are like 1990 CCSs or 1890 um, disc drills. So just a two rank, we're out here. If it's a disc drill, we'll run like an 1895, which is the three rank. So your front rank is your fertilizer um, banders. In lots of the other drills, we'll either it'll be like a tandem shank, one kind of in front of the other, or a set of, we call them mid-row banders. Um, they're like a set of disc openers mounted on the front frame, and they'll band um, fertilizer between, you know, every second seed drill for that. So here, I mean, I might get a lot of kickback on this from a few guys because I always have this conversation, but, you know, it's hard to teach an old dog new tricks, and for us out here, we're we're looking at you know, guys are trying to look at doing things in one path, and whether you know agronomically is it right or wrong, um, we have the capacity to do it, so we kind of put all this fertilizer down in one shot. Um, we worry a little bit, like if we do some spreading in the fall, depending on what we're spreading for fertilizer. We do worry about some like volatilization and, you know, leaching, things like that. And then, you know, to do strip till or anhydrous, those kind of things, right? Well, that's another path. We run the risk of drying some ground out, um, burn some extra fuel. So there is a little bit of, you know, fertilizer that will go in the fall with NH3, some banded fertilizer, but, you know, I could pretty safely say, you know, over 90% of fertilizers I'll put down with the drills here. Um, you know, and I always raise the question to producers, why are we putting all our eggs in, our, in the basket at one time? Um, you know, we don't know when we go seeding on the 5th of May if we're going to have the perfect amount of rain and we're going to have bumper crops or if by, you know, the July 1st we're going to be into a drought and we don't need all that fertilizer we put there. So, you know, I've, I've always swung it to guys like, how, how can we how can we spread this out for some risk management? And if the crop needs more, let's give it more in season. And if we don't need it, that's cash in your pocket. And so our approach in eastern Canada is is considerably different. And you know, not 
not to to I don't want to say that the Western approach is bad. It's it's what works in their system. Um, we generally with winter wheat, uh, canola crops like that, when we're putting it down with a, a air seeder pulling a 1910 cart, for us it's a bit about efficiency and fill ups. So if if we can do you know, 75 to 150 pounds of a phosphorus product uh, that has always shown return on investment um, for winter wheat crop, let's say. Um, and then, uh, generally speaking, in the spring, we do uh, anywhere from one to three applications of our nitrogen throughout the growing season to manage that crop. Um, and then when we when we look at potash, a very common practice for guys in Ontario is after we take our winter wheat off, we actually will look at crop removal and maintenance and build program for the next three years. And we will broadcast our potash with a oat mixture for cover crop usually. And, uh, and we'll broadcast that out because we all know potash doesn't it, potassium doesn't move in the soil, right? So, uh, so we we blanket broadcast that for three years, and then we do starter and nitrogen or phosphorus and nitrogen on both wheat crops and uh, and corn crops as the system moves through. So, um, so that's why we generally go to the disc drill because we're not putting as high of a concentrate down as what Dustin's guys are. Yeah. It's neat, like, it's neat when we look and see how different it is. And, you know, Sean brought up a really good point is, you know, the, the filling efficiency. So we've got, you know, a lot of guys in the western side of Canada, right? They cut the sulfur blend out of what they would put on with their air seeders. Um, there's some issues with humidity and things like that, but it, it's a fairly bulk product in their fertilizer. So they'll go float that on. Um, or put it on in another means just for a fill efficiency. Um, but you know, they won't put their nitrogen or anything down. They'll just cut that sulfur out, get it on in another aspect. So yeah, it's, it's neat how different we are, you know, across the board. So I find it interesting both of you, how different both sides are. And then I, but I also see in some ways, uh, Dustin, you were talking about why, are, why are you guys doing this? But this is actually, it, it's, it's, you guys are, ahead of where I think most of the planter market has been our row crop markets. If we look in the Midwest, like we're just now trying to get guys to think about putting stuff on with the planter here. You guys have been built. The cedar market has been built to do this for years to be able to put down fertilizer with the planter application and put it where, um, two inches over off to the sea, kind of off, off to the side, a little bit of where you want to be. Yeah. And I, I don't know. I've always used the example of, you know, when you do talk to the guys about putting, you know, the full program down kind of in a shot, you know, like the thing has always been like, Hey, look at the guys down South, you know, doing corn and beans. They're not putting all their fertilizer down with their crop. They're feeding it, you know, all year. So it's neat how kind of the circle completes. And I think it's just, you know, the management side, like, do we need to put it all down when we're seeding or planting or do we put down, you know, 50, 60% of it? in that path and then feed the crop as we need it. And I think that's 
small grains or row crop that fits anywhere. I think you're right. I think you're right. Well, and I think the, the fun of it all is, is it's, it's ROI, right? It's, um, you look at the guys down in the Midwest states there, your, your money is made on corn crops and, and managing that. Whereas, you know, right locally where I live, uh, some of our biggest payback on acres is our winter wheat crops. Um, and, and so our, you know, our management's pretty high on corn to begin with, but I, I think there's a big shift in guys that are starting to manage their cereal crops even more intensely than we manage corn crops. While we're here, I'm going to hold, hold the thought. I'm going to express my ignorance a little bit more, and I'm going to ask a question that I've not understood. And I've worked with cedars, been around a little bit, and all the cedars I've seen is, Dustin, what's the value, or, or Sean, what's the value of a pull between, a uh, pull behind versus an in between <laughs> cart? We, you guys, I keep seeing these everywhere, and it's, it's everyone talks about the difference of it. And I'm like, I, why do you want what's one, what's better than one than the other? So I'm going to express my Midwest ignorance here and ask a dumb question. That is a uh, take this one first. <laughs> that is a loaded question. <laughs> if you if you want to find if you, if you're ever bored one night and you want some comic relief, just go on to Twitter and ask that question, <laughs> and then and then sit there and just listen and read. Um, and and it, yeah, it's. Uh, there, there's quite a few differences. Like, uh, so you have your your old school box drill, which has been around for decades. Um, and typically speaking, they are just a, a steel frame on top of two ranks of openers, gravity dropping seed down. Um, not very common to have a fertilizer system on them unless it's an add-on. Uh, aftermarket, whether it be liquid or dry. Yep. Um, you know, they generally fit uh, smaller acre guys, you know, guys that have smaller tractors because it's a less horsepower requirement to get it in, um, but still very valuable piece of equipment that can can run, uh, run extremely good yields if managed properly. Yep. Um, the toe between and toe behind cart debate for us around here, it's it's pretty geographical, and I think a little bit of it is starting to play into the compaction world, as well as the tractor uh, traction world. So I, I I know guys that go to a tow between cart to get more weight on the tractor because they're pulling uh, hillier farms you know, maybe, maybe looser, sandier type soils where they have a hard time uh, having that weight behind the toolbar that's almost acting like an anchor. Um, and then I know guys that, that just prefer the toe behind because then you have 100% visibility of the toolbar because that, that, in my personal opinion, that's one big downfall with the toe between is that you have no visibility of the center section of the the toolbar um, that's behind that cart. Um, and then, you know, a, a draft of the system becomes a big difference too. If you have a cart behind the toolbar and you're on hills, you will pull the toolbar sideways. Um, so you get that, that side draft as well. In my 
opinion. I don't think there's a defined, you're in this situation, you need this one, or you're in this situation, you need this one. I think it's a preference of visibility, weight transfer, and uh, and hills. Okay. Now, Dustin, you guys are totally different at West, so what's your thoughts? Yeah, I, I mean, very, very similar. One of the biggest things for sure is the, is the tractor weight and ballast shift, right? Like a tool between cart, right? We just, we have, we have that hitch weight all the time. Um, so for us, we've got a lot of hills like locally where I am. And when I say hills, like some people call them mountains. Um, <laughs> we, we call them pasture land here in the Midwest. Yeah. Well, you know what? There, there are places that I, you know, drive by regularly and I'm like, why is that just not grass? <laughs> like I you know, can't figure out why we're actually still trying to seed it, but, um, so ballast, like Sean said, you know, pulling those hills, holding that there, you got to think when we have, you know, a hundred or 150 foot long train, um, and we have all that, that air cart behind us coming over top of a hill. Once the tractor comes over top and the tools there, we still have, you know, maybe a hundred thousand pounds in a cart on the back side of us. So the toll between helps. We do have some areas for sure that the dirt plays a big difference. When we get into some gumbo-y type clay, we need that toe between um, so we don't have the compaction over top of where we have already seated. If we do get it, we can seal it up and it's almost like concrete. Nothing will come through it. You'll see those um, tire tracks year-round. And then I think the other thing for us, right, we talk about, you know, size and filling efficiency out here you know the biggest cart on the market today that is being sold in western canada is 1300 bushels um, for an air cart so a lot of guys in the past were using tow behinds just because we could typically get a bigger size but you know over the last couple of years right we've got 950 bushel tow between now um so guys are guys are more apt to looking at different things and then to Sean's point, you know, the downside of the toe between is for sure the visibility. Um, you know, some of these things are 24 feet wide. So if you take 24 feet wide and 40 feet behind the drawbar of the tractor and, you know, draw the, the triangle, you're 35 foot almost. You're 35 foot, you can't see. Like, yeah, some of those vary, you know, like a 56 foot, for instance, you can see about, I don't know, maybe 10 feet aside type deal um so you know that is kind of the downside but yeah just really echo what sean said we're, we're pretty similar in that aspect of the hows and whys and yeah i go on twitter or the combine form and uh someone on there always has the right answer why we should be doing something <laughs> or why we should well you, you gave me some ideas for entertainment purposes now i kind of like this idea good like yeah it's, you know if you're ever, if, if you're if you're having a bad day, just go go take a look. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you. I appreciate it. Let's move. Uh, I'm going to go back and see the direction back a little bit. You you've answered my question as to as to the cart between, but let's uh or the cart or toe behind or in between. Let's uh go back a little bit and let's talk a little bit on the maintenance side of it. We started there and we we got sidetracked. Um, <laughs> so Dustin, you were talking about disc openers or kind of check your opener, make sure there's nothing worn on that. What else are some of the things that you, you tell guys to take a look at um, 
as far as, I mean, obviously there's with the different openers of a, of a C shank with a, with a hoe and the points that are obviously that, um, a disc opener. What else is, is, is there a C delivery point that needs to be checked or what else, what all else are they going to want to go through and take a look at? Um, making sure that they've got scrapers that they're set. You know, there's a lot of different packer and closing options we can run, whether they're, you know, steel cast, um, pneumatic, semi-pneumatic, you know, just depending what we're kind of looking for and in our dirt. So making sure that they're in good condition and the scrapers are set so they're not carrying mud when we do get into some wet conditions. And then, you know, when you kind of move back to the cart, that's where, you know, all the magic happens are the metering and the distribution. So making sure that your meters are clean, um, everything spins freely, there's no buildup on there. So, you know, as we're calibrating and metering that product, we're, we're being accurate, making sure we have no air leaks um, in our distribution system. So, you know, in an air seeder versus a planter, we have a ton of air hoses. Like, right. you know, we got to go from the cart all the way out to every tower and then from every tower down to every shank. So making sure that, you know, there's no air leaks and we don't start creating venturi effects um, or air air blocks and then product of the meter properly. And then checking, you know, inside your towers, making sure, you know, that the mice haven't climbed up in there and, you know, raised the family for the whole summer <laughs> and winter. And, you know, you can't find that. So kind of like, you know, when we look at planter meters and we want to, we want to make sure we do, we don't have that there. It's the same thing um, in an air seeder. We just got to check it in a lot more spots and in all those hoses. So just taking some time to make sure that, you know, air is moving. There's no air leaks. We do get some product in. It comes out of all the openers. It visually looks even. Um, those are, I think, kind of the real high points. Do you have anything really, Sean, that you – want to add to that oh i could do a three-hour session on air seeder maintenance um you know dustin has hit it very aggressively on the air system and the kinks and and the importance there um you know the the two other places that i really strongly look at is um the same as a planter your parallel arms on and and I'm going to be specific to disc drills because this, that's what I know. Yep. But there's 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 pivot points on a disc drill that when where the seed unit attaches to the the rank, those wear just the same as what a parallel arm does. So you know there's there's companies that make kits to tighten them up, um, which is is something that guys need to be a little more aware of. Um, because those those affect your seating depth and your downforce uh, just as much as, as your worn parallel arms on a planter. Um, the other the other spot on the actual row unit that I feel that a lot of people overlook is the depth handle adjustment. Um, the depth handle on an air seater on a single disc has a fork that goes down and goes across uh, a shaft the gauge wheel that bolt there is very specific to be torqued uh i believe it's between 30 and 50 pounds and if that's not torqued it will 
it will create a little bit of slop during the year. And, you know, I've seen drills that you can grab the gauge wheel and lift a quarter to three eighths of an inch because that fork is not torqued anymore. Um, so that's, that's a big area that I, I tell guys to look at and, and I recommend that they torque them at least once a year to, uh, to ensure that they're nice and tight. Um, let me, let me jump back in a little bit, Sean. So you're, tor- you're changing, this is the torque, this is the bolt. This is, if I'm thinking where some of our guys have looked at Cedar Force, this is where we're adding the weight pin, correct? Is this the piece that we're, that's correct. Depth, depth adjustment that we're going in there. So, but this is actually from the, from the handle in the back of the row unit. That it actually adjusts depth. You're saying that we can get if that bolt's not torqued, they're getting close to a, a quarter inch of depth variation from row to row just because that bolt's not torqued correctly. That's correct. That's yeah. correct. Because e- even from I've seen it on on brand new drills that you know it's like putting a tire on your car after a hundred miles. You you need to retorque it to be safe, right? right. And um you know, paint wears off and, and that kind of stuff. So it, it starts introducing slop and without retorting it, you're, you're amplifying how much slop that can, can get over time. Okay. Um, so I, I just, I believe that's an area that I got a lot of, a lot of growers do overlook. Okay. Yeah. yeah I just want to clarify what we're get for our, our audience a little bit. Go ahead. What were, you were, I interrupted you. Yeah. So where were you, where were you headed next? No. The, the, the last one that I see on a lot of air drills is up on the lids of the actual CCS tanks, or not, sorry, not CCS tanks, but the air tanks. There's a rubber seal up there and a lid compression. Um, that needs to be adjusted and checked, uh, and probably lubricated a couple of times a year because you think about it, guys, on an air delivery system, we have so much air blowing under the meters. We actually have to pressurize the tank slightly to keep product flowing down properly. And if the top lid is not sealed and your gauge isn't reading adequate tank pressure, it will it will extremely change what the out product is. So... Uh, in, ensuring that, like like Dustin had said, making sure there's no air leaks, but ensuring that you have a good sealed pressurized system as well is uh, is critical for operations. I'm looking at, at Nate and Clay right now as I'm sitting here, and I'm thinking that this is not crossing my mind of how critical your air delivery system is in the coming from a planter world row crop. As long as we're getting air there, we're not too concerned about whether there's a little bit of leak in the CCS line. <laughs> So I, I'm I'm trying to comprehend all your your importance on the air lake. It makes sense. It's just was not where I was headed with it. So well, and I think this conversation is a good way that we can tie in whether it's planters or cedars. Um, Nate K's comment about if you want the best yield possible, why would you have average equipment? Correct. You guys are talking about some some different um, areas that we're wanting to keep you know up to date on and make sure that you can get the best stand possible. Whereas we look at some very different different sides of it on the on the planner side but the same principle still applies well and i think kind of just can tie that all back and like the importance of you know the air delivery and making sure we don't create venturis and air blocks and things like that for anybody that doesn't know the one of the biggest differences between you know the air seeder and the planter is we need to calibrate 
our meters all the time, right? So with a planter, we, we've got our seed. We know what, how many thousand seeds an acre we want to plant. We tell it what disc is in there and how many holes. We'll set our vacuum and away we go. It knows the next number of revolutions, right? What we're kicking out. The big difference with an air seeder is we have, you know, a fluted type meter and every manufacturer is the same. We have a fluted type meter. Um, and we have to calibrate that, we, you know, to the density of the product that we're applying. We're applying in pounds in this one, in a scenario, not seeds, correct? <clears throat> exactly. Yeah. We're, we're pounds. Yep. Um, we're seeing, you know, a pound per acre equated back to, you know, how many, um, how many plants square foot maybe are we looking for? But yeah, we're, we're doing it in pounds per acre. So now when you start to have those air variances, whether, you know, like Sean talked about, is it the lid leaking or do we have a leak under our meters in one of our pipes or, you know, ahead or behind that meter, we can start to have issues while we're seeding, you know, maybe to a primary or to a bunch of secondaries. And that's why we need to check all these things because our only way of knowing that we really have that a problem then is if we have scales on our cart. Or when we start looking at, you know, blockage systems, um, and we can start to see, you know, that row by row variability. So that, that's kind of the importance just so everybody understands, right? We're, we're calibrating all the time where with the planter, we obviously don't have to. Can you explain that calibration piece a bit to, to give us a, like, what do you, how are you guys doing that? What is it, what's involved in taking that calibration? So, when we do the calibration, um, you know, I'll talk about, I'll do it by best practice because I think, you know, that way it will never come back to me. <laughs> so best practice is we, you know, we want to calibrate when our air cart is half full, um, you know, because that's where we're going to be at the most average part of while we're, we're seeding. So making sure, you know, you're, um, cart is half full and then that we've either seeded down the field for a while, drove down the road, drove down the field. We kind of want those tanks to settle out. Um, right. As we, as that vibration comes, you know, the wheat is going to compact a little bit. The fertilizer is going to knock down as it kind of locks itself together. So we want to make sure we have those things done before we calibrate. And this is best practice, of course. Um, so, you know, then what we do is we tell the monitor, we tell it, you know, what color or what size of roller we have in um, or flighting, depending on which manufacturer of air cart we have. Is this like the ABC distribution um, or is this a different scenario? So the ABC, the ABC distribution is how we're distributed from the cart. Um, okay. So every manufacturer, with the exception of Borgo, all of us run a fluted type meter. Okay. Um, Borgo is actually run an auger. It's how there's how they meter their product. It's a you know poly or stainless auger. Okay. Um, so once we tell you know the display that hey we want to feed 130 pounds of wheat or you know 240 pounds of fertilizer, we put that in. We start our calibration. We put a bag underneath of the meter rolls, uh, catch bag or pail. We, you know, turn that meter over. It counts how many revolutions we go. We weigh the product. We tell it how much weight we had. And then it gives us a MDV value or a calibration okay. factor. Um, 
So then it knows, and yeah, X number of revolutions, we're going to kick out so many pounds, and that's how it knows its speed. So that's where, like, the importance of the air system, you know, is, is really is really important. I can't emphasize that enough because if we start to have that problem, if that meter's spinning at the speed it thinks it's supposed to, the only way we know we're going to have a problem is, A, either by a scale or by blockage. Um, and, you know, then as density changes throughout the day, or, you know, through gin loads of fertilizer, I've seen our rate, you know, change by three, four, five percent just because, you know, the density, we've all of a sudden got a bunch more fines in our fertilizer than we did to start with. So this is where the whole inaccuracy of air feeders really starts to come into. And, you know, scales have brought a lot of light to what we're doing. Um, blockage systems are bringing a lot of light to what they're actually doing. Um, and that's where I'm excited. I think there's a, a lot to be gained in the air seeder world in the next few years. Yeah, I think when you uh, when you go down this path of calibrating and understanding an air seeder or, or a drill in general, you've got to remember this one statement. We are dealing with a controlled spill device. <laughs> that's it. You're saying that's not a precision, that's not a precision tool? <laughs> This, this is, this is a, a Sean recommendation is if you think you're going to be perfect with an air drill, you're probably going to end up driving yourself crazy. Um, <laughs> but, you know, Dustin, he, he said it a couple of times and I, and, and I, I don't, I just want to emphasize this. Yes. Having a blockage system on a drill is a very, very valuable aspect, but understanding that some blockage systems, only tell you blockage. Other blockage systems will tell you uh, a little bit of a quote-unquote flow per row, okay? So, um, you know, to a grower that has an an older John Deere-type system, uh, a two-pin weather pack Dickie John sensor, they are only going to get, I have product or I don't have product. So calibrating is essential to help you know that at that point. The, the downfall with an older blockage system in a two-product cart or a three-product cart is you will never know if your fertilizer runs out but your seed is still flowing or if your seed runs out and your fertilizer will still flow. You don't know that until you, well, basically until the crop comes up and then you always have that haze. There's my zero pounds per acre of seed check strip. That's that's right? dad's that, that was that was dad that did that, right? Dad was running during that time, it, right? Yeah, yeah. And you know, it always happens right in front and of the was, kitchen window. It was, a long, it was along the highway where everybody could see it. Yep. Yep. Yeah. So so you know, calibrating and then for, for guys like like myself where we have a large amount of box drills and even the CCS type drills, you know, I, I, I like Dustin's recommendation of calibrating as half full because that's where you're going to spend a, a big majority of your time. Yep. Um, on a box drill, uh, we, I am trying to recommend to guys that we calibrate at a third full, two thirds full and full. And we need to create a bit of a bell curve because they're, on a box drill or a CCS drill, there is no constant pressure above air pressure. It is gravity. 
it is weight of product. So what you, you talked through some of these blockage sensors, what kind of, what all blockage sensors are out there? There's the, obviously there's the one that's just a true blockage on off type of scenario. There's one that's got some relative or can give you some measurement of flow. What else, what all, is there more than just those two types or what all kind of we do we have as far as blockage sensors or a monitor to go with it? Well, there's, there's your traditional uh, two pin weather pack, um, Dickie John sensor that goes back to a, uh, a John Deere ground box. Um, you know, there, there then became the, uh, Dickie John's, uh, three pin weather pack sensor, uh, which is a little more accurate, a little bit better signal. Um, and that one can be read by, uh, our new, uh, blockage expansion module system, the BXM system. Uh, from precision, we can then take that Dickie John sensor and see row by row variabilities um, on on the precision system. Um, and then uh, there is another relative flow system on the market as well um, that that can also give you your your relative flow across each row. Okay, so there are a few options out there, but. N- they are not uh, well developed, or they're not. They they have not expanded. And Dustin, too, I think Dustin, your point was that that's probably one of the bigger markets that you or things that could be improved in Cedars is the ability to see what's going on on each airline, essentially. Yeah, no, for sure, and that I think that's why you know we've seen so many changes in the last few years um, in blockage systems, right? And that's precision with the BXM is just really got to get a a better side of what's happening. You know, we could go down a really bad rabbit hole with this and I'm trying to avoid that at all <laughs> causes, but well, um, we're hitting our, our 50 minute mark. So we kind of have to, we, I would like to avoid that. I just want to get the high level view of where we're at on, on the blockage sensors. Yeah. And it's just like, you know, and just to echo though, you know, Sean's comment of you don't necessarily, if you're putting, you know, two tanks down one run fertilizer and seed, you don't know if one runs out or, you know, is partially blocked, if the other one's still flowing. And it can paint a really fake picture. And that's where these blockage systems, you know, like our BXM and these relative type systems are really important to guys is to actually let you see what's going on inside. And I'll just leave it at that so we don't get down the down the rabbit hole. We can save that for another day. <laughs> I think I think we need to sounds like we need to have a podcast just on blockage sensors is what we need to come back and have at some point. <clears throat> That's a good idea. Um one thing I do want to ask through is what are some of the specific crops for um or what are some of the settings the guys should be aware of as they look at some of the specific crops? So wheat, canola, um, some of the other crops that are going in. What are some of the things that these that growers should be aware of as they as they get ready to set their cedar for for those for each crop? Um well, I'll, I'll go. Um, you know, if we look at wheat, canola, uh, you know, wheat and barley, I mean, are very similar. So if we look at our cereals, canola, and say, you know, peas or lentils, our pulse crop, the biggest settings we've really got to look at and watch is our depth and making sure that we're level. You know, when we start seeding canola and we're coming up into that three-quarter of an inch depth, we need to make sure that that tool is level. Um, obviously, depends on the manufacturer on what we need to do there or if you need to level it. 
um, but making sure it's consistent and that we're controlling our speed on, you know, these three rank machines, the front rank can get buried by the middle and rear ranks with dirt as it's moving through the field, you know, if we're not watching our speed. So just that depth is so, so, so crucial. Um, making sure we have the right packing pressure for the conditions and the depth that we're seeding at. Um, you know, we want to make sure we get that sealed off, but we're not, you know, cementing it in and we're not too light that we just let all the moisture go away. And, you know, then kind of tie back to the air system, um, making sure we have the right fan speed and tank pressurization for our system. Um, we don't want to, we don't want to overblow any feed. Um, so we got to, you know, find the fine balance of, I need just enough air to get the feed down to my boot without plugging. Um, and we just need to find that sweet spot because if we start, you know, putting too much air to it, we're ricocheting feed around in our tube. Um, we risk, you know, some cracking, some damage, which is obviously mortality. And then we can start to get feed bounce in our trench, right? If it comes out of there at a fairly high velocity and hit the bottom of the feed trench you know, maybe not sit on the shelf where it's supposed to be. So those are the things that, you know, crop to crop, we really just need to pay attention to is our depth, our levelness, and our air pressure are, I think, kind of your three key things. And there's a lot of detail in each of those, but very high level, those are the three things. And those are the things that would change based on, largely because of seed size, seed weight, and, and depth of planting. Yeah, and rate, right? You know, like you take canola, if we're seeding it, you know, five pounds versus, you know, wheat at 130 or 140 and peas at, you know, 180, 220, you know, kind of similar to beans. Like, so yeah, there's a lot of differences. So just a little bit of that eye to detail. Great. Sean, you got something to add to that? Um, So... Not, not really. Like I, I would like to, uh, Dustin, you, uh, you keep referring to uh, packing pressure. Um, you know, just like to to make sure that everyone realizes that and understands that you're referring to closing, not gauge wheel packing. Am I correct there? Yeah, that that's right. So there, there's our yeah. crossover terminology for Frank Sean. Yep. That's a yep. uh, that's a that's um, a shishank hoe drill versus a disc show drill, correct? <clears throat> Big time, yeah. <laughs> um, but I, I, I agree a hundred percent. The detail to the fan speed is probably one of the most critical things um, for crops because you, like, like Dustin said, canola. Uh, we seed alfalfa with air seeders as well, um, and and not only do you risk bouncing around in the trench and not not getting underneath that closing system properly, but too much airflow just it just blows the seed right out of the trench and and that can be a a big problem um so no i I think he did a a great job touching on the three key components for changing crops um the the fourth one there, and we've already had this conversation, but when we're when we're going to different crops uh even different density of uh of fertilizers or you know for beans if you're going from something that's 2200 seeds per pound to 2600 seeds per pound uh it's going back to calibrating those meters 
um, those are that's that's a, a critical step when you change planting from winter wheat to canola to alfalfa, whatever. All right. Well, we are long into our podcast. I think Nate's got a lot of editing to work on yet to get this done. Clay or Nate, do you have anything else you want to add to this? Being completely honest, air seeders and drills are a little bit out of my realm of, um, definitely out of my realm of expertise. So I've just <laughs> been kind of sitting back and enjoying and just taking in the conversation. So I just want to thank you guys for, you know, taking your time to come on and, and talk about the differences in your regions. It's been, it's been awesome. Yeah. I'll kind of say the same thing as Nate. The most familiarity I have is a 1590, 15 foot John Deere drill and go patch some beans in or <laughs> plant, plant some sorghum city and grass that we chopped. So it was, it was by no means a scientific effort. We were just literally a controlled spill out there and hoping for the best. So no, I'd, I'd like to thank you guys as well. And uh, I appreciate you guys joining us and it was good to chat. Well, yeah, thank you guys for having us on. It was really good, and I hope Sean and I shed some light to, you know, everybody that doesn't really know what near seeder is or how it works, and to the guys that, you know, do have them, I hope we maybe brought a few things to surface for you. Thank you. I appreciate it. It's been a very good learning for us, so I really do appreciate Dustin, Dustin for coming on. No, I appreciate it, guys. It's... um like you, like you say, we're, Dustin and I have a, a bit of a different region up here with some of our approaches and practices and, and uh, being able to share that and have the conversation is always fun. Is, uh, one thing I've learned in the ag industry over my career is what I do here may not work on your farm, but there might be something that we've talked about that sparks an idea that you might learn something on your farm. Yep. And, uh, that's what that's what knowledge is all about. So I appreciate the chance of being able to chat with you. It's been fun. Thank you so much for coming on, Sean. I appreciate it. It's very good to to hear. Um, and I definitely think that we all learned a lot listening to you guys today. So I appreciate it. With that, I think we will sign off for this uh, episode of Smarter Every Season, and we will look forward to joining you again next time. Thank you for listening. 